Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 52 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. And before we get started, Pat and I both want to just recognize 9-11 and uh, the 20th anniversary yesterday. And we're taping this uh, Sunday evening. And uh, so we have two arguments today and a bunch of predictions sure to go wrong and updates to get through. Um, in our first case today, and they're both second district cases, the first case is Field versus Excel a case involving duties owed to a truck driver who slipped on ice and there's a parking lot and or is there a duty <laughs> or is there a duty and there's a whole discussion about how how recently people plowed it and there's a subcontractor and we'll get into that case in detail momentarily the second case today is midwest masonry versus central irrigation an extremely messy case addressing issues of a lease holdover issues a forcible, forcible eviction, uh, attorney's fees, and all kinds of other things that we'll get into as well. With that, let's turn to our first case today, Excel. And the questions raised here include, what duty is owed to a truck driver who slips on ice in a large parking lot at a, warehouse, at a warehouse facility? As Pat mentioned, is there any duty at all? Are the contracts between the property manager and owner and between the property manager and snow and ice contractor? sufficient to create a voluntary undertaking to protect the plaintiff from injury. And there's some interesting questions and oral argument that Pat will get into about how extensive that duty might be if it was taken to the nth degree. What evidence does the plaintiff have to present to create a question of fact as to whether the condition was a natural accumulation, in which case there would be no duty, or an unnatural accumulation, in which case there could be a duty, and that was talked about extensively as well during an oral argument. Is the icy condition an open and obvious condition? And if it is, does the distraction exception apply? If there is a duty, should the court consider the comparative fault of the plaintiff in failing to wear ice cleats as he was trained and which would arguably have prevented his fall? These are among the myriad of questions that the Illinois Appellate Court Second District will consider when it decides Field versus Excel Inc. that was argued two weeks ago. And the case here involved a truck driver who had to unexpectedly, unexpectedly exit his truck to place a seal on it before exiting the yard at a large facility in DeKalb, and he had to walk uh, 50 yards or something like that to get a, a materials That'd as well. That'd be one long truck. I think it was just the 53 yeah. feet of the truck. 53, 53 feet. You're right. I, I apologize for that. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be one, that'd be one yeah. big yard and one big truck. Yeah, it would be. Uh, the weather, weather condition uh, were, were a polar vortex, so it was minus 11 degrees. And the suggestions from the court were that the de-icer would not work in those circumstances, and salt probably wouldn't completely melt it as well. The plaintiff was unclear on the condition of the ice he fell on. He did not know how or when it formed and claimed, apparently without basis or any kind of uh, insights other than he thought the ice was four inches thick, which is pretty thick ice. The trial court granted summary judgment to both defendants. 
uh, finding no duty was owed as the plaintiff could not show that this was an unnatural accumulation. Pat, tell us about oral argument here. Thanks, Dan. So, so there's a lot of layers to this argument, and there's because there's a lot of issues in Illinois as to, in, in snow and ice cases like this, and I don't think we've really delved into this too much before. So, I want to go through it real quickly, kind of how Illinois deals with these things. Illinois follows what's called the natural or unnatural accumulation rule, depending upon your perspective. Uh, if snow and ice forms through a natural accumulation, then the the landowner typically doesn't owe a duty to the uh, in to the plaintiff uh, in a slip and fall type case. If, however, the snow and ice forms as a result of a unnatural accumulation, so you have a freeze refreeze situation. So the snow gets plowed, it, it stacks up, the sun comes out, the snow melts, it cools back down, and the and the ice or the water that had dripped off from the accumulated snow that had been plowed away then refreezes. That would be an example. Or if you have gutters that uh, put water out that then freezes that causes the person to slip and fall, this kind of a thing. And then, so one of the first issues you have to figure out is, okay, where did this ice or snow come from that you slipped on, Mr. or Mrs. Plaintiff? And that's... The, one of the problems here is it was really unclear where it came from. Did it come from tracks? You know, what it, the snow, I mean, it's always music to a defense lawyer's ears. And I've elicited this response from before. Where did the snow come from? The sky. Outstanding. It didn't come from, it didn't <laughs> drop off of a truck. It didn't, it wasn't plowed up. But you'd be surprised how many times you ask the person, where did the ice, where did the snow come from? They go, they kind of give you this quizzical look and they say, the sky? I agree. It did come from the sky. It didn't come from anything my guy did. Genius. Uh, or, di or didn't do. Uh, and and, you're, and, and the, you can just see the plaintiff's attorney cringing and squirming in their seat. They know they've got work to do uh, to try to rehabilitate this problem. Um, and, and so, But then also in this case, you've got these two contracts that Dan mentioned. And they form, typically a contract forms the, du the tort duty that the defendant owes. And how but you have the background principle. Uh, so can you expand the, whatever the background common law duty would be by a contract? And oftentimes these contracts say you got to scrape the thing down to bare asphalt or concrete, whatever the surface of the, of this parking lot is. And then the question becomes, okay, did you reasonably, did you comply? Were you reasonable in what you did? Uh, and as Dan mentioned, this is a situation where the uh, weather conditions were pretty, pretty harrowing in terms of trying to remove snow and ice when it's minus 11. Uh, one of the, that's temperature, not wind chill. Uh, and you've got this giant yard that's owned by Goodyear with all these trucks coming in and out, makes it very difficult, not only because of the size, but because of the activity on the property to get it plowed properly uh, and sufficiently and stay up on it. And so one of the things that came out was is that apparently in the testimony during discovery is that Farm Boy, who was the uh, snow and ice plow company, left their equipment at this facility, so they didn't have to leave and come back. They just had to show up and go and, and go to work. So you have you have the voluntary undertaking, you have the background principle, you have the contract. Then you've got some defenses, and one of those defenses is an open and obvious condition. Okay. Generally, a defendant doesn't have a duty to protect against an open and obvious condition, and ice in this 
sometimes ice can be an un, uh, one you can't see. That that's certainly sure. something. This Black doesn't ice, seem to be that. Ice, yep. Yeah, this doesn't seem to be that. This seems to no. be a, a circumstance where there was ice everywhere, uh, and it just was not possible to remove it all. Which brings you into this analysis that the courts sometimes do, even where they say, "Okay, it was open and obvious." But then you look at, and we talked about this in the case where the guy fell into the manhole. They did the four factors of how do you compare who was um, uh, what the burden would be, among other things, of imposing this duty on the defendant. If it would be too great, then especially, and in this case, you have this giant yard and these harrowing conditions. Would it be reasonable? The, defense, the plaintiff argued that there's an exception that applied called the distraction exception. The distraction exception applies is when you, when the defendant should uh, expect that the plaintiff will, uh, the, 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 will expect the plaintiff to encounter this because they don't really have any other options. And we, we've had that case before, too, where the guy fell down, where he didn't wear the right shoes at the ADM plant. And so another situation where a guy not didn't wear the right shoes, these cleats that would have prevented this fall. And he had been trained in this uh, distraction exception also has to be there has to be for a, a monetary benefit uh, that that would lead you to uh, encounter this circumstance deliberately. And then strangely, contributory or, or I'm sorry, contributory fault or sorry, comparative fault came up, which didn't make any sense to me because that's a that is a jury question. What, right. the, what the defendants seemed to be arguing was, if you had worn the cleats, this wouldn't have happened. Therefore, the plaintiff was the sole proximate cause of his fall, and therefore, we win. I, I tell you what, as defense counsel, I hope they, I hope that wins the day. Because, But I don't see how you do that on summary judgment. That seems to be the kind of thing that needs to go to a jury, but we'll see what the court has to say on that. Sure seems so, like a question of fact, right? It, it, it you know... A comparative fault is the ultimate uh, is the right. ultimate jury question, I think. But I think. we'll see. I, I they argued it, and the jur And sometimes when the judges, when justices hear an argument and they don't want to hear it, they'll just tell you. Many years ago, I was I, I was it, we were the beneficiaries of this. We were in front of Judge Strike that Justice Fitzgerald Smith, and opposing opposing counsel gets up in an eighty three million dollar case, and he starts making an argument on a particular point and justice Fitzgerald Smith says, counsel, move on to your second argument, <laughs> but, but you're on counsel. Don't spend your time on that argument. Talk, tell us about the other argument because yeah. that that's going to be a waste of your time. Counsel got the point and moved on to a second argument uh, because they weren't buying the first one. Uh, so sometimes they're very blatant and they're like trying to do you a favor. It's like, we've already made our mind up on that one. We want to hear about this other thing. They didn't do that here. I was, you know, as okay, that's going to be interesting to see if they get to that. They won't have to, as you can see. There's this is like an onion. There's there's all these different issues um, here, and it and it, what makes this really difficult is this is summary judgment, and so the record isn't is developed as well as it would be at trial. But they, we're dealing with questions of law whether there is a duty, and so that's usually determined by a judge. Uh, you can have fact questions, but then it becomes hard to figure out what the duty is because now you have these mixed, you have a question of fact mixed with, with a fact question of law. And let's just say the jury instructions in Illinois, especially in the absence of effective special interrogatories, don't do a real good job of handling those. Uh, the jury instructions are uniquely unqualified to deal with those. 
So th- this, uh, th- there also wasn't a discussion of how badly this guy was injured, but I can imagine the, you know ice is usually unforgiving. Yeah. Uh, you know, the nature of it, he may have been a broken ankle, leg, you know, hip, something. Uh, but it's very interesting case. An issue that I've written on, um, and this one really kind of throws all the issues out there uh, of of open and obvious, of duty, of natural versus unnatural accumulation, the whole bit. Uh, Dan, is there anything else we need to talk about with regards uh, to, to this case? Just very briefly, the opening of the appellee I thought was very telling because on the appellant uh, was talking about constructive knowledge and he said that there were the people were going around walking repeatedly and at all times and what they what he said was they were looking to make sure the trucks were locked but not for the condition of ice or other things right and the other thing here was was that there's no the contracts we didn't see them or anything but they didn't get into great detail but uh, one of the justices i think asked you know again to to what degree do you have to do this would it be constant uh was it Burkett that was asking? Yeah, I think it know, was. I think it was Justice Burkett. You're right. Yeah. yeah. If we, if we get to the stage where you are arguing, counsel, you're essentially making it a, five minutes. You're basically making it a strict liability situation, which yeah. is which is entirely unreasonable. Right. And you'd have them plowing constantly, which again would be so cost prohibitive. They they would shut the lot down. So. And, and it and it pro, and it still wouldn't eliminate every it would as the words of the of counsel for apple said we're not an insurer of someone's safety we have to act reasonably and the question is did they i mean under these conditions it seems like if there was only four inches of ice they did pretty good yeah right yeah <laughs> so and the other thing one more thing and i i, I um is the the judge the ju- or one of the justices i think it was justice burkett brought up brought up both that hey you know, de-icer doesn't work at this temperature, so there's nothing really they could do. And, oh, by the way, have you ever plowed? Because I have, and this is how you do it. There would have been this extra snow left by. I was like, oh, okay, Th- thank you, Judge Posner. I mean, it was it was one of those kind of situations where he was bringing in his – I mean, and it's hard for justices and judges not to do that, but it was like, okay. I mean, the first one certainly is something of science. He could figure that one out. But how you plow, that's that's the stuff of expert testimony. There needs to be someone testifying, hey, I've done this, and it, it, I'm not sure it should be an appellate court justice. Well, we've, we've talked about this uh, you know, extensively throughout our episodes and through this podcast about judges and infusing personal knowledge about golf carts or whatever it is, horse horses, breeding, and, yeah. you name it. They have the expertise and bring it Probate in. Probate courts. It's very hard for them right. to not be people. They're people. So, right. yeah. It's, it happens, but it, it, you hope it doesn't uh, inform the decision um, too much. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Midwest Masonry versus Central Irrigation Supply, a case in which we all wish we had Midwest Masonry as our client. We're back for segment two of episode 52 of the Podium and Panel podcast and uh, to talk about Midwest Masonry versus Central Irrigation Supply. Now, we don't talk about a lot of commercial litigation cases on the show. They're oftentimes too complex to really get into and to do justice because the they're, you, also, you also can't tell a lot from the oral argument. But this oral argument lasted for an hour and seven minutes. Uh, which is part of the reason why we're only doing two uh, arguments today is because the second one was 
it was two. It was one for the price of two, um, which is kind of the opposite of what you're looking for. Um, and it's, but we we know a lot more about the facts as a consequence of these lawyers being able to um, argue for over an hour, which is over twice as long as they're, they're they were allotted. So does a the questions here are: Does a lease obligation end when the landowner files an eviction action? And that's the central question to be decided when the Illinois Appellate Court Second District rules on Midwest Midwest Masonry versus Central Irrigation Supply. So they had the, these parties were in a, a five-year lease. Uh, Central was renting a, a, a property from Midwest, and those negotiations broke down and. It seemed that the lease had ended by its own term sometime in May of 2014. And in tw- and so they held over. And the usual rule is when you hold over, you go month to month. Not this lease. We'll get there. Uh, yeah. In December 2014, the negotiations break down. And in mid-December of 14, remember, this is 2021 now, people. December of 2014. Midwest files an eviction action and they get a judgment in January of 2015 and more than 30 days goes by. And as a consequence, the judgment becomes final. And among the things they were seeking was $11,000 in rent that they claimed that they were owed. Um, The judgment was ultimately vacated on appeal. So central got counsel came in, filed a 1401 petition gets that denied, appeals that, it gets reversed, and they come back down. Midwest spent 20 grand losing that appeal, the first one. Keep that in mind. <laughs> so then they come back, and now they've litigated. They've been back, I think the original appeal comes back in like 2016. This case gets litigated for another four or five years. Now it's at the appellate court time number two. Judgment is entered in front in favor of the landlord with a fee award of a hundred and thirty some thousand dollars. Thirteen times it seems <laughs> something on that order of the underlying damages. Except there's a hundred and twenty-five dollars in costs that are awarded to Central for having won the first appeal. So great. <laughs> Congratulations on your 125 bucks. The chief objection by the defendant to these attorney's fees is that there was no testimony that was provided at trial as to their reasonableness, and the plaintiff did not expressly reserve the right to submit a fee petition. Uh, I, I don't do money much forcible detainer. I've handled one maybe over the years, um, but it's this basic concept of if you, you everyone learns it in first year property law, if you hold over, it's month to month. In this case, the judge held that it was a year for some reason. Nobody appealed that judgment. And then there are a number of other issues that arise out of that with double rent and penalties and interest and all kinds of other things. Dan, why don't you tell us about the oral argument? Sure, Pat. And as you said, that there, there was really just one uh, main issue that was, was here on appeal. Uh, b- both counsel discussed forfeiture and waiver of arguments. Like you said, there was a cross appeal. So the, there was the, a cross that was appeal. Part of the reason why the argument went a little longer is yeah. there was a cross appeal. And then there was a sur rebuttal and all this other stuff taking place. Uh, but um, 
uh, a very messy case. Um, the contract, you know, whoever uh, uh, the drafters of this contract, I mean, it's it, it had provisions in there about double rent and about uh, all these other things that that you would extend to a year. And what happened? Just a little bit more more uh, information. Pat gave you a lot of the details. Is that uh, Central was was out of space? That the, there are piping and they had supplies and things. They were on this road and they were trying to renew. Uh, they were asked about that. Well, didn't you give indications you were leaving? Right, you you guys were looking elsewhere, and, and the council for Central said we were looking, but at the same time. Everybody knew where we were located, the address. You know, we had customers and really didn't want to move if we didn't have to. And But uh, it just broke down and we ended up in a different lease at some point. Um, there, there, the, you know, one, one of the things, you know, we've talked about in addition to judicial notice or, or judges having knowledge of various things and bringing it into the cases came up again in this case because, uh, one of the questions that was asked was about the completeness of the record and whose burden it is to have a, a completeness of record. There, there were certain forms and certain parts of the contract and certain things from the trial that just were not in the record that was uh, the appellant didn't put in there. And so the appellee was said that, you know, it's their burden. It's their record, right? They're the ones appealing this thing. And uh, as Pat and I have said repeatedly, in various contexts, in various cases, the, the the mantra that you have to ask for what you want. You have to establish a record, and on appeal, you have to have it on the uh, on the record. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of uh, things being appealed. Like Pat said, uh, there was argument that that they did not appeal the actual hundred thirty thousand dollar entry of fees. What they appealed, uh, and the question was whether or not they had preserved the right and whether it was. The process within the court. Usually when you appeal a fee award, you're going line by line. You say that took too long or that's an unreasonable fee or that didn't happen or something like that. No, in this case, like you guys can't get a nickel because you didn't file the right petition or you didn't ask. You didn't file the petition. You had no testimony as to whether the bills were paid, which would be a which would make them presumptively reasonable. You did none of those things and you didn't reserve the right to do it. So it's kind of hard to understand how the judge ruled on these fees to award that kind of sum. The other interesting thing that the the uh, appellants talked about was that this uh, and and during oral argument, there's a lot of discussion about uh, somehow there's just common knowledge that this is the way that the judge handles these types of cases, and that it doesn't come up that he finishes the case. And the justices were skeptical. They kept asking, you know, do you have actual, is there a part of the record that shows where that is actually the, the process? Or are you just making this stuff up or just telling us that that's what goes on? Um, very, very, again, very, very bizarre uh, uh, thing. One, one, of the th one of the justices asked a question and they, they said, you look at the fees requested and the damages recovered, the huge disparity. Isn't there case law in Illinois that says that you can't have almost like the punitive damage Supreme Court type of formula. Like, like you said, it's 13 times. They were very skeptical about, you know, isn't there some, some kind of case law that would look at this? And the response was, look, the judge took a look at it and was fine with it, right? They, he, he didn't allow double rent, but he allowed these fees to be uh, awarded, and that's, that's okay. Uh, and and so. there's a question as to the standard of review. Is it a is it a de novo or is it an abuse of discretion 
standard of review for that. And so the question becomes, did he actually review them? Is there was there discretion exercise? Because you can't very well give deference to a judge, a trial judge exercise discretion if he didn't actually exercise his discretion. <laughs> right. And the appellee was asked about the, the, the egregiousness of the fees or the ratio. And he said he was very concerned about the fees. But again, he said that the appellant forfeited it because they did not appeal it. They, they didn't object. They didn't put it on appeal. They, they focused solely on this one question of, again, whether the record was preserved. And then there was, a, there was at some point, there was a question, though, by the trial court judge that came out on oral argument where the judge said, what about fees? And they submitted or, or whatever, like you said, no, nobody challenged the line by line. They submitted the fees. So uh, some real questions there about about whether or not, you know, there actually was uh, discussions about the fees that, that, that took place uh, during the trial. Uh, Going back to the original question, and the, so the, it was the, the legal position is that once that eviction action was filed, the lease obligations of Central were gone, and yep. they had no further obligations under the contract after that, and they cited some cases that said that. I, I, I guess there's some facial appeal to that, but I, yeah. I, I don't see how – if you found that there was a year-long lease – the judge, which the trial judge did, and you didn't appeal that, yeah. then I don't see how you can say that it was cut off once they filed the eviction action and got you evicted. I, I, I don't understand how I can't hold those two ideas in my brain very well. Maybe I'm I'm missing something. But that was but, uh, that was the central argument of, of that was the central argument of Central's lawyer. It was, and, and on uh, the legal they, issue, they referred to a lamp the lamp case, but that was a surety case that had totally different facts, and they kind of alluded to it. I tried finding the lamp case, and a bunch of lamp comes up, but I, I could not find the exact uh, did you rub case. It three times? To, I did. Um, no luck. It, it, to, yeah, to, to me, it's a it, it, it's a bizarre argument anyway, because one of the justices asked a, a hypothetical or question as well. So if you're a holdover tenant, but you're there's there's an eviction action, then you're you're done. If if, you, if it happened during the five year lease and you stop paying rent, then once they evict, you don't have to pay. There's no obligations. It seems like a very uh, high hurdle to, to be able to convince anybody that that's how contracts work. And we, I haven't seen this contract, but that just doesn't it doesn't make intuitive sense. He's at making all. A com an argument from the common law. And I just don't see that being I, I don't see how that would be a workable common law rule. Um, it doesn't seem to be the common law rule in, in my understanding. And admittedly, it's most of what I know about this is from law school many moons ago. But it, it just doesn't seem to be very commonsensical. But we'll find out. Yeah. And the other, the other uh, on the cross appeal and, and, and the sir rebuttal, uh, there, there was also a discussion uh, that there was, in fact, uh, affidavits of, of at least some of the attorneys in this case of what they had worked on and time spent. And so, again, um, it just seems, uh, as as we both mentioned, it's a messy, messy case. It's hard and, to figure out what happened here. So it is. It, hopefully, it the is. hopefully the court's opinion will sort some of this out for us. But some lessons in how not maybe to do things, so you don't have these kinds of questions. Right.
So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with segment three, where we're going to talk about five decisions that came down over the last couple of weeks. Um, and we went uh, four and one, but the one isn't as bad as one would uh, as as we thought. So that'll be the last one we take. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 52 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to go through um, decisions from the last uh, couple weeks, uh, all from the Illinois Appellate Court, uh, discussing cases that we've handled. Uh, and as I said before the break, we went four and one, so we're, we're 60, 10, and five. That's a pretty good NBA basketball record. That so is. I, I, I'm pretty happy. Uh, the first one is, say it again. Oh, it's not going to equate to the the Jordan Bulls. There, no, seventy two wins probably by the time we get to eighty two. But we got those five that's ties. Too, that's too bad. bad. Not too bad. Yep, we're more like a the hockey first team. one is Silver versus Hornick, um, which dealt, which is a situation where a trust a, a trust dispute arose, and the one of the beneficiaries sued the trustee and the co beneficiary in Illinois, but neither of those two defendants live in Illinois. Dan, tell us a little bit about the decision in Silver versus Hornick. Sure. And this was a first district case, and it was was actually a pretty quick turnaround. We discussed this case on episode 47 of the show. And so we talk about some of the uh, districts being very fast. In this case, it was a very quick decision. As Pat mentioned, this was a case that involved uh, a co-beneficiary and trustee of a trust. It was settled in Illinois. Uh, because the de- uh, but the defendants were residents of Washington and Colorado, respectively. Um, there, there was they tried to anchor it into Illinois because the investment advisor uh, was was and tax returns were done, I think, in, in Illinois. And uh, uh, this panel, um, as we predicted, uh, wasn't buying it because it's hard. You cannot shoehorn jurisdiction into a state where the main players and the main uh, party uh, with interest uh, are, are not located, and so um, and so the, the pretty quick decision by by the first district in this case, which brings us to the next case, Turner versus City of Granite City. This is the, the from the fifth district, and the young lady and her brother were going to Taco Bell, uh, and she slipped or fell in a pothole. Uh, that was we'll take for the purpose that we'll take for the purposes of the argument was in the the crosswalk, although the court wasn't so sure. Um, and they affirmed the grant of summary judgment in favor of the city. Um, I think they rewrote what the crosswalk statute says, Dan, uh, we, because yeah. they they acknowledged that the part of the cross sidewalk she came from had. Uh, had been cut out and then they make a lot of what's across the street that there's a, you know, there's a curb and a parkway and then a sidewalk and no like cutaway to walk in under the side, under the, the crosswalk statute in Illinois, 
that doesn't matter. Right. It has to be where it would be if it were there, not that it was there. And by yep. that, I'm talking about the cutaway or the or the lines. I, I just think they've missed. We predicted it correctly, but they they've just misread um, or they've rewritten, I should say, the crosswalk statute. Um, and that, not only the state statute, but the Granite City Ordinance was very right. clear, marked or unmarked, and they changed it subsequently to say only you can only be in marked uh, crosswalks. And, uh, and 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 so as a consequence, you, you'd ha- they'd have to have meant unmarked at the time that this young lady fell. And I, I just, again, we called it right, but I, I don't see how, bending over backwards so municipalities don't get sued when they fail to maintain their property seems to be a thing. Uh, and that, that's what happened here. And we talked about the normal trip to Taco Bell. And so I guess here in this case, the young lady's, you know, proverbial out of luck. <laughs> so. She is. <laughs> she is. Which brings us to another fifth district case, Giacomo versus Carson. Uh, why don't you tell us about Giacomo versus Carson? Dan. And again, this was one of the uh, numerous uh, forum nonconvenience uh, cases that are down in St. Clair and Marion County. Um, the well, St. Clair and Madison County. This one went between the, 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 those one, are the two places people are trying to get out of. I know. Yeah. Although but, recently but, they've been trying to get out of St. Clair to go to Madison, but either yeah. way, get yourself out of one of those two counties if you can. Yeah. 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 But, but in any event, down in, uh, as we've talked about, there, there's even cases, uh, I think we talked about one case where it's actually Missouri and St. Louis versus uh, St. Clair County because uh, as Pat said, it's forum shopping, and I think down in the southern part of Illinois, uh, in the St. Louis metro area, they could probably have its own docket with these cases because it constantly comes up, especially in medical malpractice cases. Like Here, this one. Yeah, the, the, the 5th District, in this case, they affirmed the granted transfer under forum nonconvenience from St. Clair to Marion County, even though St. Clair was the home county of the defendants. And, and they talked about convenience and, and uh, like in all these cases, uh, the oral arguments, they spent extensive time uh, talking about the, the public and private factors. And, uh, you know, in some of these cases, uh, and, and one of the reasons we probably get some of them right is, is you can tell from the justices questions when we covered this case uh, on, on episode 49, we talked extensively about the, the justices and kind of asking those questions. And, and so uh, we got that one right as well. Uh, the next case. Uh, well, was, before we go to that, before yeah. we go to that case, Dan, I, I want to bring something out that was an issue in Giacomo. And that is it. The question that was presented by the appellant was convenience is a separate factor from the six factors. That's right. And the court didn't, even acknowledge that distinction. And I think they went with, no, no, the factors are how we determine convenience. Right. That's what we look at. Right. And this was another situation where just like in the Wiley versus Schaefer case, where the, the, the court uh, denied transfer from St. Clair to Madison County in this case, and they plainly said, we wouldn't have decided it this way, but this was not an abuse of discretion which is, you know, no reasonable judge. This is another situation where I think these justices might have said, you know, if it were me, the trial judge, I probably would have denied the motion. I probably would have left it in St. Clair. But not as strongly as they said in Wiley, but they're like, no, this a reasonable judge could come to this conclusion. So those are a couple, the standard of review, again, rears its head 
always keep it in mind. Which brings us to banks versus advocate. Let the bomb proliferate because they get to try this case again, Dan. I know. Tell us about this opinion. This this was a first district case that was uh, dealt with experts on tax, the expert on tax returns. And the court held here again on a standard of abusive discretion that the trial court abused its discretion. They allowed the question of the plaintiff's expert regarding tax returns that suggested fraud by the plaintiff. This was the case uh, that we discussed uh, that involved the uh, wife uh, filing returns as head of household. And that became a big issue at trial. And they went return by return, asking the tax return guy about uh, alleged fraud. You know, there's real question. And as we talked about, um, some real issues there because it could have been a mistake. Who knows if, if you know, if, you know, I have a tax return guy. It, it probably wasn't. It, was, it wasn't a mistake. Right. It probably wasn't a mistake. <laughs> but, but, um, so, um, uh, yeah. So, um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a case where the court would allow some questioning about the tax returns, but it wasn't going to allow the. It made this distinction between the questions. And then the comments around them at the question, and then particularly had a problem with what happened in in uh, closing argument, defense right. count, and and essentially said that this deprived the the comments were along the lines of you can't lie to the federal government and then come in this court after having lied and ask for sixteen million dollars. Right. Uh, apparently, you can yeah. um, because they're going to go back and try this case again. Um, so it's, this was also discussed on episode 47, uh, of the show, which brings us to Irving Park versus total insurance. And I have a theory, Dan, why don't you tell us about the decision? And I want to, and then I'm going to espouse my theory as to what happened here. Sure. This is the case, uh, involving an insurance broker and, and, uh, uh, policies that have been in place for five or six years. And then there was a renewal. And Justice Pierce, as I think you're probably heading to, uh, at oral argument, was was very insistent. Like, no, it's it's a, every year starts again at the renewal. Why is this now within the statute of limitations? The uh, um, and this was Walker and, and Hyman and Pierce. Um, they said that the the they reversed the dismissal of claims against the insurance broker. Held that there was a question of fact. The court stated. We hold that the policy presents a question for the trier of fact as to whether a reasonable customer informed by an agent that the policy includes coverage for lost business income would understand after reading the 120-page policy that the agent misrepresented the policy and the policy did not provide coverage for lost business income. The opinion is unpublished, so it's merely persuasive and not presidential. Um, the deck page in this did show that there was no business interruption, right? That was part of this. And so, Pat, why don't you tell us your theory of what, so what happened here? My theory here? is this. At the oral argument, it was plain that Justice Pierce wanted a reversal of this case for reasons that he essentially was, as we talked about at the time, would have turned, would have overruled, would have tried to overrule crop. And crop is this decision from the Illinois Supreme Court that says the statute of limitations begins to run from the date the insured, from the date the policy is written, and the insured has a duty to inspect his policy, and unless it's the case that the insured can't tell by looking at the policy that 
there, uh, they can't tell by looking at it that there was a mistake made by the insurance broker, the statute of limitations begins to run. At the argument, it was it seemed to me not as clear with Justice Pierce, but it seemed the judge Justice Hyman was like, no, no, the, the the rule is the rule. So the question is, could you tell? And we shouldn't overturn the rule, maybe because Justice Hyman agrees with it, maybe because he doesn't think he's has a position to overrule the Supreme Court, which is what I think Justice Pierce's ruling would have done. I think and so. So then you have Justice Walker, who was a little he wasn't as clear at all as to where he was on this, but he is one that is very happy to find a question of fact. This decision yes. is, this opinion is like 12 or 13 pages, and it has about a paragraph of legal analysis. It spends a ton of time quoting the policy and it quoting does. a whole bunch of stuff. And then at the end, it says, there's a question of fact as to what this policy says. So I think what happened is it, the opinion was written by Justice Walker. Justice Walker said, there's a question of fact. That didn't undo the rule, which the rule of crop, which would have satisfied Justice Hyman. It got a reversal, which is what Justice Pierce thought was the appropriate result. And so Justice Walker writes the opinion and you get this you get this decision about whether it's reasonable. So about whether there's a question of fact. So it'll be interesting in the future. Dan quite rightly said that this is an unpublished opinion, which means it can be used for persuasive authority only. Uh, and what a deck page, what, what qualifies as something that isn't uh, sufficiently clear to, to an ordinary person. I want to put this in context with crop, and I've said this before. In crop, it was a change on a homeowner's policy on advertising injury coverage, essentially, for the, the, the teenage son defamed someone allegedly online and they would have had coverage under the traveler's policy. They went into an AmFam agent and they asked for a like policy, but that one, that policy didn't have that same coverage. These people were supposed to figure out that that coverage wasn't there. That seems a bit different and a bit more sophisticated uh, than what happened here in uh, what happened here in, in Irving Park total. versus Total Insurance. So it's going to be interesting to see how these play out. Um, as to what's reasonable and not reasonable. So with and that we discussed on episode forty-two of of the show. So with that, let's do our our prediction. Sure to go wrong this week. We have uh, first field versus XL. Dan, uh, is this going to be affirmed or or is there going to be a reversal? I think it's going to be affirmed. I, I think it's going to be affirmed because the plaintiff has too many hurdles. Right. It's one of those deals. If you remember back, you know, Dan mentioned 9-11 at the beginning where, you know, the, the terrorists only have to be right once. But the but the people trying to protect you have to be right every time. The plaintiff has to be the, the defense only has to be right once. One of these five layers of this onion, they got to win on. They don't have to win right. on all. Of them. They just have to win right. on one. And, and the case is over. And I think they're going to win on one. I don't know which one, but I think they're going to win on one of them. I think so too. Which brings us to Midwest Masonry versus Central Irrigation, and I feel a bit handicapped in in, in trying to decide on this one, but uh, because there's so many moving parts here, but I just can't see a rule where Central gets out of um, gets gets out of the lease entirely. I, I, I don't see that happening because also because they didn't appeal the 12 month holdover right. uh, term, but I also don't think that they're that you can that these fees they're going to do something with these fees. I think I'm so. not sure what it's going to be, but they're going to do something with these fees. 
Yeah. I, I Beyond agree. just expressing their displeasure at oral argument. I agree. Although, again. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm leaning towards affirmance just because, again, of, of these arguments of forfeiture and waiver that they didn't raise any of these things on appeal. They The only thing they appealed was whether the right had been preserved to raise fees in the first place, which is bizarre. Why would you not have included this? I, I don't know. So affirmance, we'll go with that. We'll go with affirmance. What the heck? Yeah. yeah. So with that, Dan, it brings us to a related issue, the rule of the week. Uh, you dug this one up. So why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Yeah, we were struggling a bit, honestly, between Pat and I. Most weeks we find something. Sometimes there's something from a case. And the closest we could come in this uh, uh, week has to do with this uh, question of attorney's fees and in cases of, of uh, uh, real estate and, and, and the leases kind of related to that uh, second case. Um, we dug up today's rule 512-180, attorney's fees, and it says, in, except in cases of forcible entry and detainer actions, the prevailing plaintiff in any action arising out of a landlord's or tenant's application of the rights or remedies made available in this ordinance shall be entitled to all court costs and reasonable attorney's fees, provided, however, nothing herein shall be deemed or interpreted as precluding the awarding of attorney's fees, enforceable entry and detainer actions in accordance with applicable laws or expressly provided in this ordinance. And so, again, um, it seems like the, the, there is the, the ability in these cases, and, and most leases have uh, uh, a collection that's other, that, that was the other thing about that case that, that was talked about extensively is what obligations were being enforced. The people were on time with their rent, um, the, the five-day notice. But in any event. Yeah, and if there's, was, a year, if there's a year holdover, how do you kick them out? And then, right? and then, you, and then you kick them out. So there, right. there's just the whole, which is why, why did you not appeal the 12-month holdover? It's, it's a real yeah. problem for, the, for the, uh, app, the appellant that they didn't appeal that ruling. I agree. Uh, they rely they're putting all their eggs in one basket and that's not a very good basket it's a very very shaky rickety basket that the eggs are going to fall out of i think right for sure um so with that uh i think that's all we have for this week um there was three there were three arguments i'm sorry four arguments across multiple cases in the 7th circuit on friday so there wasn't enough time for us to get ready to do them justice um these were dealing with COVID business interruption. So we've done an argument from the Eighth Circuit. We've done an argument from the Second Circuit. We did three arguments from the Ninth Circuit. We've had the uh, the Eleventh Circuit issue a ruling that wasn't argued, is non-precedential, and was per curiam, the ultimate cop-out. Um, and so they have uh, – now the Seventh Circuit's gotten into the end of the act, and we'll do a show on that, on those arguments. We're, we're not sure when. we got to see – as we come back out of the break, um, we'll see what uh, what arguments are out there. Uh, but we'll do a show on those. Maybe it'll be the whole show next week. Maybe we'll do a special show. But we'll do a show on that. Uh, so be on the lookout uh, for that. And that's also going to be the topic of my column for this week. It's hard to do justice to the, the two and a half hour, two hours or more of argument in uh, in nine hundred words. But I'm going to try. <laughs> So I'm sure, it'll be, I'm sure it'll be great as always. Well, I, I do what I can. Uh, so I'm Dan Cotter, 
And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.